tragedy that took place Friday morning in Newton, Connecticut. I want to address the question of where is God in the midst of our suffering and pain. I have a sermon this morning that it's been several months as I have been out walking and praying. The Lord has laid on my heart and has kind of come in pieces and It wasn't until yesterday um, that I fully understood the timing of the sermon, and no doubt it is for us here this morning, and is very relevant to the tragedy that uh, we saw take place um, on Friday morning. But I ask you to pray for me this morning as we take a journey through the Word of God together, Old and New Testament alike, but for the main purpose of getting started this morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 13 through 16. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, please, as we read four verses together. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 13. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is His land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew, and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of Him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Now look at chapter 34, verse 1 real quick. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah where is a cross from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask now, Lord, that You would fall upon me. God, I pray for anything in my life, God, that would in any possible way hinder Your move through me this morning. God, for Your forgiveness. I thank You, God, for the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ which cleanses us of all our sin. And Lord, this morning I present myself to You, my faculties, my members, my my mouth, my brain, my heart, Lord, my soul, all that I am, my strength, Lord, I surrender it to You and ask that You would use it this morning for Your glory. Anoint me with the anointing of heaven. Let the power of the Holy Ghost convict our hearts this morning. Help me to speak spiritual words to spiritual people because You are a spiritual God. Help us to understand this morning the words of Your Word. Help us to see this morning with the eyes of our hearts. God, I pray that You would save every lost man and woman in this building this morning. I pray that the veils would come off the eyes of those, Lord, who think they're right with You but are not. God, this morning they would quit running. They would fall at the feet of You. God, I pray, Father, that this morning we would find comfort in Your Word as we consider the God of the thorn bush. Have Your way, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you on that thought, the God of the thorn bush. I will show you that this is a thorn bush in a few, in a few moments. But before I do that, I I want us to understand our passage. I read to you that Moses had died. And in our text of Deuteronomy chapter 33, 
Moses is getting ready to die, and he knows this. God has already revealed this to him. And so before his last moments on earth, before his, his breathing, his last dying breath, Moses takes the time to bless the tribes of Israel and to finish, if you will, any unfinished business concerning who got what territories and, and what God's purpose and desire was for each of the tribes. Deuteronomy chapter 33 covers this last sayings of Moses, and then it tells us he went up onto the mountain to die. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, of all the twelve tribes, of all those that Moses addresses, there is actually only one name that Moses calls God. There is only one name that he refers to as God. That name is found in verse 16. In the latter, or in the first part of it, the favor of, and here's the name, him who dwelt in the bush. Isn't it interesting that in Moses' last days of his life, now, here's a man who had been through a lot, that the one thing that he was most willing to call God by, it was the God of the bush. Not the God who parted the Red Sea. Not the God who sent manna from heaven to feed them in the wilderness. Not the God who brought living water out of a rock. Not the God who, who uh, 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 protected them in all these great ways. Not the God who healed the, the sour water with the, the miracle of the stick. But he referred to Him as the God of the bush. Several months ago, when I very first saw that, and God started working this sermon in my heart, I thought, what an odd title of all the things to remember and call God. This was how Moses most remembered God. This was the last name before Moses died that he referred to God as. The God of the bush. This morning, I want to preach to you about that thought for, for a little while. But before I get to the, the purpose of our text, before I get to the heart, of the, of the sermon, I need you to give me a few moments to teach you this morning, to lay the groundwork for the sermon thought. It's important that I do it or else I wouldn't be doing it. It's important that if I'm going to build an entire sermon on a thought, that I prove to you the thought is valid. So first this morning, I want us to look, we'll come back to our text, but in the New Testament, it records this event in Acts chapter 7, verse 30 and verse 35. Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament, is giving his final speech as well. Before he would be martyred, stoned to death for his faith. And it's interesting, in his speech, he also references this event and the bush. In Acts chapter 7, in verse 30, And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hands of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now in verse 30 and verse 35, the word bush is the word batos. According to the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, the Greek New Testament, this word batos means thorn bush, briary plant. Matter of fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible this morning, yours actually says thorn bush. It's the only translation that does. The King James, the New King James, the NIV, the English Standard Version, none of them say thorn bush. They just say bush. But if you have a New American Standard Bible, you were reading yours and saw that yours said thorn bush, which is correct. 
The word bush is not wrong because it is a bush. But I think it's significant that it was a thorn bush. In verse 35, even more interesting, that last word bush is the same word, batos. But in verse 35, in the original uh, language, in the original text, that word batos is found twice. Now, this is very significant. It's found right next to each other. Batos, batos. Sometimes this was done to refer to the type of plant and then the word plant. It is impossible to interpret those two words next to each other in any other way except thornbush. When Moses saw God in the bush, it was a thornbush that God appeared to him in. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17 before we get to the thorn bush. Let's look at thorns this morning. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have taken in the seed of the lie of the devil. They have allowed it to be cultivated in their hearts and they have acted upon their sinful desires. And I've officially and finally sinned against God. And therefore, the fall of man and the curse came to this world and mankind. Look what we see concerning the curse in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Let's look at 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and the dust you shall return. We see in verse 18 that thorns were actually part of the curse. There used to be no thorns. There used to be no thorn bushes. There used to be nothing that that would uh, hurt you if you partook of it or, or, or reached out to grab it. But when man sinned against God and the fall as we know it took place happened, the curse brought about thorns. The first thing that I want to say this morning is that sin has brought the curse upon us. Sinning against God will always bring the curse. Sinning against God will always bring thorns into our lives. God did not intend that thorns uh, be surrounding us. God did not intend that we live in a world that was cursed by sin and that was overgrown by thorns. In the Bible, suffering is regarded as an intrusion into the created world. Creation was made good. When God was done, He looked at it and He said, it is good. But when sin entered, suffering also entered in the form of conflict, pain, corruption, drudgery, and death. What we saw take place Friday and what we've seen taking place really especially in in an unprecedented manner over the course of the last 10 or 15 years where people are shooting people, they're shooting innocent children. I think this hit close to home because it was in America, but there was an absolute travesty four or five months ago, I believe it was in Norway, with that man who walked into a, a, a camp and just unloaded on children as well. This hit more at home and it got more airtime because it happened in America. But the reality is that we are living in a world that is hostile and violent. It is growing and raging out of control. And I want to say this morning, the reason for the violence, the reason for the sin, the reason for the thorns, 
it's not because God intended it to be that way, but it's because evil has intruded into the created world that God created. And we currently live in a world where there is evil that abounds, there is a real devil, there are real demons, there is real wickedness that is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And it wants to hurt whoever it may. It wants to kill whomever it may. It wants to destroy whomever it may. And it wants to destroy the, the faith that people have in God. And when things like this happen, often the question is asked, where is God in the midst of our suffering? Where is God in the midst of such pain and turmoil? How could a loving God allow something like that to occur? This morning, that is the question we intend to answer. The first thing we want to do at the onset is establish that from the Gospel we learn that we have an enemy, that he is the devil, and that the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was the seed that gave root to a world cursed with thorns. These thorns and these thistles that that the world has, uh, has overtaken the world, that were part of the curse, were there intentionally by God. They were part of the curse to remind us of the fall. To remind us that this world that we live in is cursed. That there is something wrong with it. All the thorns, all the suffering, if you will, and anguish that we go through in life is meant to be a thorn that pricks us, that hurts, that almost draws blood and reminds us that this world is not our home. There is something desperately wrong with this world. And the thorn that took place on, on, on Friday was so wicked and heinous that none of us would have ever wished it upon our worst enemies. But it nonetheless stands as a thorn this morning in our sides. And it reminds us that this world is fallen, that it is evil, that it has nothing good to offer to mankind, that it is full of curse and death and wickedness and evil. And to that extent, somehow, some way, there is a blessing in the thorn. It reminds us of what we're not so quick to remind, be reminded of. It reminds us that, that the deceit of this world will pull us further and further away from God. That there is nothing this world has to offer. That all the wealth and all the fame and all the fortune and all the ability to pursue whatever you want and do whatever you want will still leave you hopeless and empty and void and it will not change the fact that this world has been encompassed by thorns and thorn bushes all over and there is pain and destruction on every side. The curse of sin was the origin of thorns. Now the next place that we see this idea of the thorn bush is in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 13. In Genesis chapter 22, God has told Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And they have gone all the way and Isaac is laid on the altar and they have carried the wood up and they have made the altar and Isaac is bound and there he is on the altar. And as Abraham goes to raise his hand to slay his son, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven and tells Abraham, don't do it. God sees that you have placed your faith in Him. God sees that you have obeyed Him to the very end. And in verse 23, excuse me, verse 13. Well, my notes are wrong. Thank you, I'm in 21. 22. And verse 13. I would have looked a long time in chapter 21. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Here we see a ram caught in the thicket. Now, I did some studying on a thicket, and I found out that just to be called a thicket, it doesn't necessarily have to have thorns. And I spent a long time trying to figure out what type of thicket was this. Is it fair to assume that this thicket was a thicket of thorn bushes? 
And what I found out was that in the mountain range of Moriah, there are four main types of trees or bushes that grew. One was called the prickly juniper, which sounds like a good name for a thorn bush, but the prickly juniper was actually a tree that could grow up to 46 feet. No doubt a tree with a large base that could grow up to 46 feet was not what the the author had in mind here. The other was a tree called the myrtle tree. The myrtle tree could grow as tall as 18 feet. No doubt a ram did not have his horns caught in a myrtle tree. The other is something called a strange vine. It is a bushy shrub, smooth, with slightly ribbed shoots. And then the fourth thing that we find, which makes perfect sense, is what's called the buckthorn or the Palestine buckthorn. More than likely, it's the only one that would make sense, a thicket that would be something that would catch a ram in it. This tree could grow up to the height of six feet. So it was a bush that was uh, about four foot on average, could grow up to six foot tall. It could grow in all types of soil, including stony soil. It was well adapted to dry climates. It could survive where the rainfall was as low as eight to nine inches a year. In Israel, buckthorns grow primarily in woodlands, shrublands, and in the mountain vegetation of Mount Hermon, which is right where we would find our story in Genesis chapter 22. The Palestine buckthorn is evergreen in Israel and grows with a many-branched, tangled form and velvety thorns. First of all, before we look at the buckthorn that this ram was caught up in, let us understand the term thicket. A thicket is a bunch of branches that are actually twisted together. And it's once you get stuck in it, it's sort of like having your finger caught in a Chinese finger trap. You can't get it out. The more you pull, the tighter it gets and the more that more uh, winds up and, and, and you get caught in. It's interesting. I want you to see the picture of Genesis chapter 22. Here we have a ram caught, the Bible says, by the horns. It's pretty specific. By the horns in the thicket of what I believe we can without question assume was the only bush that makes sense that would grow in that area, the buckthorn bush, uh, bramble bush. Here we have a ram caught in a thorn bush. And I want you to look at how he's caught. If he has horns, and his horns are caught in the bush, this would have to mean that the bush, that the branches, that the the thorns that were uh, catching him up, they were not on the top of his horns, or he would have been able to pull back, but they were under his thorns, keeping him from pulling away. And here we see the twisted, thorny vine wrapping the head of the sacrificial ram. What a picture of the thorn of crowns that would be twisted together and placed on the head of our Savior on Calvary's tree. What we see is that God Himself has entered into the thorn bush. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, Back to our text. Moses remembered the God of the thorn bush. So with the groundwork this morning of looking at the actual words of Acts chapter 7, verses 30 and 35, and understanding it was indeed a thorn bush that God appeared to Moses out of uh, as a flame of fire. That thorns came as part of the curse. That the ram caught in the thicket of Genesis chapter 22 had uh, thorns twisted around his head 
keeping him from getting out of the thicket until it was time for him to be the sacrificial ram. What is the lesson for us this morning? It's very simple. We see, as we see the God in the thorn bush, that God Himself has entered our suffering. Genesis chapter 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 33 and and Exodus chapter 3 where God appeared to Moses are representative of the fact that God has not left us alone. That while this earth is cursed and that while it is overgrown with thorns, God did not leave us to walk through it alone. God did not leave us to be wounded by it all by ourselves. But He said, I will enter into your pain. I will come to where you are. I will wrap myself in the very thorns that have cursed this world so that I might know your pain, that I might know your suffering, so that you might not have to go through this curse alone. He entered into our pain. He is the God of the thorn bush. He is the ram caught in the thicket. He is the Savior who is crowned with thorns. God has not left us alone to experience this pain all by ourselves. He has entered into it to identify with us. I can tell you this morning, while I don't understand the why, and while I can't speak to any one specific event like what took place specifically at that school in Newton, Connecticut, I can tell you that God has entered into our pain. That He has suffered like we have suffered. That we serve a God that knows the pain and the destruction and the hurt that we go through. That He can identify with you this morning. No matter what you're going through, no matter what life has brought you, no matter how thorny your life may seem, God knows your pain. He has entered into it with us. He has not left us alone. And we're going to see before it's all said and done this morning, He has provided a way out. There is another land where a thorn will never grow. There is another city where destruction will never take place. There is a place where there will be no more tears in our eyes and it will be joy forevermore. But until then, we must know that God is with us. God has not abandoned us. We see the God of the thorn bush. He saw where we were and said, I will enter into your pain. I will come to that place. I myself will be inflicted by the pains of this world. I myself will be inflicted with the suffering and the torment that all of you go through. He said, we will go through it together. He entered it and experienced its full force and fury. He has suffered with us that He might set us free. God experienced the full wrath of the wickedness of this world. All I can tell you about the pain and destruction that took place this weekend was that God knows. He does know. He knows the terror. He knows the horror. God knows. His own Son was crowned with thorns on His dying day to say, I have entered into your suffering. I too have been touched by the curse. I too have felt the full fury of wickedness and evil. This morning, all I can tell you about suffering in the world that we live in is that God Himself is acquainted with it. He has not left us alone. He has not left us to suffer all by ourselves, but He's entered into it and He has suffered with us. And more importantly, He has suffered for us. Oh, how how has He suffered? He knows what it is to be ridiculed by His own family. He knows what it is to have His words twisted and misrepresented. He knows what it is to be hated by the religious leaders of His day. He knows what it is to be falsely accused, and not only falsely accused, but condemned on the false basis. What a picture of being touched by the thorns of this world. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was there and asking God, Lord, please, for, uh, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Dr. Luke, the only one of the Gospels, records that when Jesus prayed, His sweat became His drops of blood. 
there's some scientific and medical explanations of how that could actually be possible, but I was thinking about that as I was preparing for the sermon, and I thought, here he was, so inflicted by every thorn, pricked in every single area of life, that on his last dying night, his body was seeping blood. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to to go through the torture and be murdered violently at the hands of wicked and evil men. What a tragedy this weekend. It's hard to fathom the wickedness that took place. All I can tell you is our God Himself has went through it too. He knows our suffering. He knows our pain. He has came so that He could identify with us. So that He could wrap His arms around us in the midst of a sin-cursed world and say, I know my child. And not say it simply because He's an all-knowing God, but because He chose to send His Son to clothe Himself in human flesh and actually feel what we feel and experience what we experience and know the rejection and the pain and the suffering that the thorns of this life bring. He knows experientially this morning the suffering of mankind. God says there is a way out. There is a way. There's a reason I came. So that I could relate to you. But not only so that I could suffer with you. So that I could say that I know. But so that I could suffer for you. And offer you a hope that one day you might be brought out of this world. That one day you might not have to live here forever. God crowned His own Son with a crown of thorns. We see it the God of the thorn bush, that something entered the curse and yet it was more powerful than the curse. It was not controlled by the thorn bush. It was not controlled by the curse. It entered it and it was there. But it was so overwhelmingly more powerful that that most of us, myself included, in all of our lives, when we think about the story of Moses and the bush, the idea of it being a thorn bush, the significance of it being a thorn bush, almost rarely has ever crossed our minds, if ever, because we see that God Himself is greater than the bush. The emphasis was not the thorns. The emphasis was a God whose fire burns in the midst of them. Teaching us to look past the thorns into the fire of God. Teaching us that you don't have to look away from the thorns in order to see Him. That God is not somewhere else, but He's there in the midst of us. Hurting and suffering with us. Waiting for the day when He will come and once and for all, finally and forever, eradicate this world of sin. So in all of our sufferings, let us look to the King of Sorrows, who He Himself was crowned with thorns. Let us look now at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. Here's the promise. Let's just let's go ahead and look at uh, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 5. Actually, 6. Verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Thank God for that. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There 
shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. We see that suffering reminds us of a greater world to come. There is a purpose for the thorns. This world is not our home. Those of you who are saved here this morning. The reality is if you're not saved, this world's not your home either. But rather than heaven, you're going to spend forever in eternal hell. The thorns remind us that there is a different world that we are to be moving on towards. That there's something wrong with this world. This morning, to those of you who are God-fearing believers following the Lord this morning, can I tell you, don't be uh, confused by suffering. Know that our God entered into it with us. And know that there is coming a day when we will enter into that new heaven and that new earth, that new Jerusalem, where there will never be any thorns again. There will be no sorrow and pain and anger and frustration. It will be done with once and finally for all. And in that day, in Isaiah 28, the prophet said, The Lord of hosts shall be a crown of glory and a garland of joy to residue His people. No more crowns of thorns in that land, but a crown of glory. The Lord Jesus came not so that we would not suffer, but so that He could go through it with us. To know our pain. And to provide a way out of this world through faith in Christ. The answer to the pain of this world and the suffering that we face. The answer to our slavery to sin and the bondage to the flesh. Is a God who came and entered the thorn bush. He's the answer. It's Him that you must look to. Oh, God, help us to look to the fire of the bush and not see the bush only. God, help us to see that You are greater than the suffering. Help us to see that You came and entered it to make a way out and lead us out. He will. This world is coming to a head. It really does not matter if it's going to happen in our lifetime or if it won't. Because it is going to happen. And the signs of our times give us every reason to expect and believe it could happen soon and very soon. Look what First Timothy tells us about the end. Chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. We'll just look at those and stop there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It says in the latter times, I like verse 2 especially for our, our, our sermon today, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The conscience of our culture has been seared with a hot iron. The things that are permissible are unbelievable, even in the church. 
the things that many of you under the sound of my own voice watch with your own eyes to entertain yourselves is filthy and disgusting in the sight of God. And you think nothing of it as you feast yourself upon pornography and people murdering one another and wickedness and evilness and you find it entertaining. Our conscience has been seared as with a hot iron calling what is right wrong and what is wrong right. Notice it says, speaking lies in hypocrisy. I think about the hypocrisy of our culture. We have taken supposedly woman's rights, which sounds like a great honorable thing, and handed the woman the right to destroy a child that's living in her womb. All under the banner of woman's rights. We have taken speaking hypocrisy in lies. Under the disguise of supposedly helping the poor, we have decided to demonize those who work and those who have wealth and think that somehow we have the right to take it from them and give it to those who will not. When the Bible says, He who will not work shall not eat. That's what the Bible says. I understand there are some who cannot work. I'm not talking about you. But our culture has run rampant with those who refuse to work. Who look for every possible excuse to get on disability so that I and you can pay their bills. And somehow we call that honorable. Speaking hypocrisy is what it is. I want to say carefully and clearly, there is a need for disability and there is a need to help the poor. And that is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. But this is not my first rodeo. I've been doing this for many years now. We help a lot of people who need help in this church. And I have seen no small number of people who abuse the system. Our consciences are seared with a hot iron. I'm just going to say it. I don't even care anymore. Buster's Bar and Grill here in town, the place where the drunks hang out, has a new hamburger on the menu. It's called the Aviator Hamburger, named after Pastor Joe Boyd. It's two grilled cheese sandwiches with a cheeseburger in between them. What a shameful day when the local pub And I've talked to men who have hung out at that pub. We've had one by the name of Dave Gaston come and testify to us of how often he would go there and get slaughtered and the the way that he treated his family during that period of his life. What a shame. How in the world did that happen? How do we have a supposedly God-fearing church that's supposedly trying to lead people to Christ with a stinking hamburger named after it out one of our local bars. How does that happen? The answer is, our consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And we don't even know what wrong is anymore. We don't know what holiness is anymore. It's as if there's something to be ashamed about pursuing holiness. Holiness is to be set apart. That's what sanctification actually means. And sanctification is a process whereby we as God's children, we should be set apart more and more and more as we mature in our faith. But the church is sinking backwards and we're looking more and more and more like the very thing God's trying to set us apart from. And what is terrible is that somehow, some way, we're proud of that. I mean, it'd be one thing if the hamburger just showed up against the the will of the church. And somebody from the church had to go down and say, look, in all due kindness, this this is just, this is not us. We don't don't want our church name on the menu of your food at this bar. But that's not the case. That's not how it happens. We're proud of it. As if it's something honorable. Because we have found some way to be so likable that even the drunks at the bars eat our hamburger. God help us. 
I'm telling you, the end is near. How can it not be? In the latter times. This is where we're at. I could go on forever. And I won't. We've got pastors in our own community. The Wichita area. Pastoring supposed Christian churches on our airways with commercials that say hell is not a real place. Hell is too a real place. Jesus Christ preached about hell. The lake of fire is a real place. It's called the second death, the Bible says. It is the eternal home of all those who are unsaved. How does this happen? The same pastor had another commercial. This is recent. This says clearly. I believe I might even be quoting him word for word. When he says, Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven. A Methodist church, I believe. How can this be? And what else I want to say about our conscience being seared with a hot iron. Where is the fire inside of us to stand up and say so? I love Pastor Joe Boyd. I hesitated to say what I said, but there was a time and a place where we call it what it is and call it out. The Apostle Paul did it with Peter. When do we get concerned enough that we do something about it? Our consciences become so seared that we see something on the television and our, our response is, well, that's terrible. What's that pastor saying that for? Well, that's crazy. What are you doing about it? What are you doing? Has your conscience been so seared that these things no longer matter? I ask myself the question. Jesus asked Himself, He said, when I come back, will I find such faith on earth? But I think to myself, what would Jesus feel as He took a, a, a look at the scope of Christianity right now in our day and time? What would He feel? What would his response be? We need to wake up. Second Timothy chapter three, another verse about what times will look like right before he comes. But know this that in the last days perilous times will come. I'm going to read these very slow, and I want you to just let it sink in and see if the Word of God is talking about you this morning. Men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Here's that word again. Unholy. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What pleasures keep you away from God? Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, here's what we're told to do. This is the biblical response. You're going to obey God and obey the Word of God. Here's what the Bible says. From such people, turn away. From such people, turn away having a form of godliness but denying its power. There is not probably one single brief statement in all of the New Testament that better describes this, the current state of the church in our country. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Where is the powerful conviction of the Holy Ghost? Where is the conviction of God's people that causes them to live holy and clean lives? 
to care not what the rest of the world thinks, to not excuse ourselves from our, our duties to God and the things God's called us to do. Everybody's got a form of godliness, but denying that power. He's going to return. Now, I want to ask the question, what if He had returned Thursday night while all of us were sleeping? This tragedy that happened on Friday never would have taken place. What if God had said, Thursday night, enough is enough, and tonight is the night of my return, and He looked to His Son, and He said, go get my church. There would have been no tragedy Friday morning. At least not at that school. But there would have been tragedy worldwide as millions of parents woke up to find their children gone. There would have been tragedy worldwide as millions, including many of you under the sound of my voice today, would have had their, their fate forever sealed in a devil's hell. And because of you, God has waited. Because of them, He has waited. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us God is not slack concerning His promise as some people think slackness is. But He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It tells us the reason He awaits. Because He longs to see more saved. But the Bible does tell us there will come a time when God will stay His hand no more. When sin will once and finally forever be dealt with. I ask again the question, what if that night had been Thursday? How many of you would have had your fate forever sealed because it would have been too late for you? What if it's tonight? What if tonight's the night that when we all go to sleep, it happens while we're sleeping? Because I love you enough and I care about you and I know that God loves you and He cares for you and sent His Son to die for you, I mean this when I honestly say, I hope if you're not saved and you don't get your heart right with God tonight that you can't sleep a wink tonight. I pray that you go to sleep thinking to yourself, what happens if He does come back? What happens if I fall asleep only to wake up forever in a devil's hell? And I hope that terror overcomes you and you realize enough is enough. And then you turn to a loving God who cares enough to send a preacher in front of you this morning and tell you the truth. Who cares enough to make the way out. Who cares enough to devise a plan where despite the fact that we're all sinners and all of us fall short of God's glory, we can still find salvation and forgiveness and wholeness through Jesus Christ. The last thing I want to say this morning, and I'm done. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 30, you don't have to turn there. It says this. It says, the voice of the Lord came from the burning bush. The voice of the Lord came from the burning bush. We see that God speaks out of the fire that burns in the bush. That bush, that that, that thorny bush, it is representative of us, of our flesh. The flesh is, is sinful. The flesh belongs to the old order. The flesh belongs to that which is cursed. But God speaks out of the fire. And we see this picture of what God's people are supposed to be. A burning bush. Yes, I still have thorns. Yes, I still have this old flesh nature. But God, let Your fire burn in me and out of me so bright that when people look at me, they don't see my thorns. They don't see the wickedness. They don't see the old nature. But they see the living God. And let His voice come out of us as we be that burning bush where the fire of God burns bright, where the fire of God burns continually. And when the world looks on the church and when the world looks on us, it sees something that is different. That just like Moses, they must stop us 
life and say, what is it about these people? They still look like everyone else. They still have flesh and bone, but there is a fire because we have been baptized, as the Word of God says, by Christ Himself with fire and with the Holy Ghost and let it burn in us and out of us in such a way that all the world looks on and marvels and says, what is it going on in the hearts of those people? This is God's desire for you. Oh, let the fire be the focal point of our lives as our worship team comes. God has entered into our suffering. God has gone through it with us. His heart breaks like ours breaks. He knows the pain that our country is going through this morning. He knows your pain this morning as an individual. And He is the God of the thorn bush. He is the ram in the thicket. He is the Savior crowned in thorns, dying on Calvary's cross so that you could be set free. This morning I plead with you if you're not saved, you ought to be thankful God didn't come back last Thursday. But you don't know how much time you have. Today is the day of salvation. Seems like all I could see was struggle. Haunted by ghosts that lived in my past. Bound up in shackles of all my Yeah. 